Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal RX. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years' experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast episode of Tech Talk with Optimal RX. Today, Julianne and I are speaking with renowned Australian naturopath Sandra Valella for a very topical discussion around longevity. And this is a topic that we're really excited for Sandra to cover in more depth in her upcoming webinar for Optimal RX, which will be live on Monday, the 16th of October, 2023, and will focus on herbs and longevity and how we as practitioners can lead our patients into a healthy future. So if you're a practitioner and you haven't booked in for that yet, book yourself in because it's such a valuable topic and Sandra is the perfect speaker and clinician to really take us through how we can practically enhance health and longevity for ourselves and our patients. And for those listening who aren't familiar with Sandra Valella, I'm just going to take a moment to introduce her to you now. So Sandra has been a naturopath and herbalist for almost three decades. And after graduating from the Southern School of Natural Therapies in 1993, she completed a Master of Applied Science in Acupuncture. Sandra runs a busy naturopathic private practice and has a particular interest in women's health. She's also the consultant naturopath and clinical leader for Jean Hales for Women's Health, Australia's leading women's health organization, and this is a position that she's held since 1999. As well as working in the Jean Hales Medical Clinics as part of a collaborative healthcare team with general practitioners, medical specialists, and other allied health professionals, Sandra is responsible for the development of educational resources on natural therapies for women for the website, national magazine, webinars, and seminars for both the general public and health professionals. She also creates recipes for the Jean Hales Kitchen. And additionally, Sandra lectures final year naturopathy students at Torrens University in Melbourne. So they're very lucky students. And uh, welcome, Sandra. Thank you so much for joining us today to chat about longevity. Thank you, Kristen. It is indeed a valuable topic and it's also a huge topic. I'm going to find it quite difficult to curb my slides and but still make it interesting, I hope. I know it'll be jam-packed. And I think, you know, it is a broad topic, but when we think about uh the word longevity, mm. I think sometimes we can limit that to really talking about how long we're living. So like living for a longer period of time. So having a an extended lifespan, but really what you'll be talking about in the context of naturopathic medicine is, is health span. So being as healthy as we possibly can, as we move through our lives, because I guess, I mean, living for longer isn't as appealing if we're riddled with disease or problems that are severely impacting the quality of our lives so absolutely yeah we are living longer but you know the studies Australian sort of looking when you're looking at the ABS we are most a great proportion of Australians have at least one chronic disease and then even unfortunately a great proportion has more than two chronic diseases and so it's all good and well living longer but you actually want to be living healthier and well yeah definitely and that's, I mean, that was just so important to every every person. So every practitioner would have that as a relevant 
um, focus for their patient population that they're seeing. So mm. when we're talking about that healthy aging versus unhealthy aging and and from your research and and in your clinical practice, what do you see as the biggest risk factors for yeah. unhealthy aging? So it's really got to do with too much of the stuff that's not good for us and uh, not enough of the stuff that is good for us really. We can't stop aging. You know, we start aging as soon as we're born. But a lot of this stuff is invisible, what happens underneath. So it's, you know, it's not rocket science. A lot of it is these healthy behaviours that we need to adopt throughout our life, particularly a balanced diet. Lots of stuff around the Mediterranean diet. I'm really going to unpack what that means to Australians. You know, what's the easy ways to try and get the Mediterranean diet messages out to our patients? Really, you know, looking at, at exercise as being a fundamental pillar of what we need to be doing. And, of course, removing things like too much alcohol, um, tobacco smoking, you know, really cigarette smoking is one of the, the least risk factors. High body mass is and it is really important as well. So, you know, we know that these, these healthy lifestyle factors are really what's important, um, but not necessarily people want to do these things. You know, this is hard work, you know, putting the right food on our plate and making sure that, you know, we're exercising. The other one that's interesting is calorie restriction. And uh, we know that that's important for longevity, but I am a little concerned about how some people are doing that, you know, these time-restricted eating, but what, what they're eating in that time-restricted time. I, I wonder sometimes there's not enough time to eat the good food, but what they are, what people are eating isn't necessarily optimising their health particularly. We also know... That it's interesting over the last century that the aging process is really being looked at, and there is a we know that it's affected by a lot of these molecular pathways, cellular pathways, and systemic alterations as well. So I'm going to look into that without being too boring. And what I find really interesting about that is when we look at these processes, a lot of the herbs that we have traditionally been using as herbs that enhance our health generally actually target these processes. You know, and we know that, you know, for example, anti-inflammation is the root of all non-communicable diseases and you can really break that down. Yeah, I really love when the the traditional uses of our herbal medicines flow through to the science, you know, that, that shows and, and uncovers those pathways as to why these herbs were used traditionally so mm. well. So that'll just be fantastic and really affirming for herbalists and, and practitioners that are listening. And I think some of those uh, driving, I guess, um, risk factors that you mentioned, like excess or chronic inflammation and all those kind of things that that really do influence those chronic diseases that you mentioned mm. earlier as well, that, I guess, really um, underscores the importance of us going down and trying to see with our patients that maybe have chronic disease present or perhaps have those kind of uh, pr uh, processes, biological processes occurring that are that are increasing those risks for chronic disease, that it's important that we do really assess for and address those things yeah. really in our patients because, you know, especially like those metabolic sort of issues that can drive so much dysregulation in other body systems, it's really important Absolutely. yes and uh, look um you know in that i've got this lovely slide that looks at the timeline of how we've understood the aging process you know when the understanding of you know 
fibroblasts come in, when the understanding of mitochondrial dysfunction came in, when they started using pharmaceutical medication to come in. And, you know, there's this, now we've identified 10 hallmark, hopefully 10 hallmarks of ageing. And so I'll go through those, you know, so, so we've got a nice little snapshot. But yet, look, a lot of the, you know, the underlying factors that we look at with chronic disease like cardiovascular and and also when we look at Alzheimer's, is really looking at these modifiable risk factors that I'll mm-hmm. cover particularly. And modifiable is the, modifiable. Is the word that's so good. So if we can, you know, address some of these modifiable risk factors and prevent some of these conditions and, you know, we can, I guess, stop that um, acceleration of ageing. Yeah. So these modifiable risk factors, people don't want to look at them, they don't consider them. And a typical example is, is our patients who are ordering nootropics online and wanting to put stuff in their coffee to help with mental cognition and enhancing, you know, I don't want to get Alzheimer's, but forget that things like high blood pressure are really important. So their blood pressure might be sitting around 140 on, on 90 and not doing anything about it. They have a waist circumference of 105, but they still want to take their Bacoca and Ginkgo. And not do, you know, really that we know that these modifiable risk factors are really the stuff that is going to accelerate the risk of, of cognitive decline. And it's well established now, I, I, well established in terms of these risk factors. And I'll, I'll look forward to kind of delving into that a little bit more. And that's a really excellent point and, and speaks to that addressing the cause and addressing the driving factors that we yeah. that we look at when we're seeing our patients naturopathically. So. Yeah. I guess in terms of age um, uh, in our patients, do you ever think it's too early to broach this topic with our patients? When do you start to kind of look for and, and address the the domino effects of some of these risk factors? That's a really good question. And I guess it also looks, it, it depends on what aspect of, of ageing and, and longevity you're looking at. So, for example, you know, if you're looking at, say, sexual function, testosterone starts to decline in males from the age of 30. They don't want to hear that, but it does. If you're looking at the beneficial effects of estrogen and the decline that happens at menopause and the, that the beneficial effect of, of, of estrogen and the impact on cardiometabolic factors, then you start looking at around perimenopause. And that's often like when people will get that well women's check to make sure that all their lipids and their blood sugar, the HbA1c, but look, you know, because ageing starts from the time we are born, we need to start getting these messages out in right from the beginning, particularly when we look at diet. I'm thinking of the dinner that I dished up last night for my family and and my teenage daughter will have what I eat, you know, and like we've got this good variety of vegetables and lots of different colours. My son's not going to eat that way, but he will actually eat the carrot as I'm preparing dinner, the raw, the raw beans, and he will have, he will have um, the raw vegetables, so he's getting all these vegetables in. And that these messages that we give to to our even our young people about what's on the plate, and they're actually a lot more up to date with what they're supposed to be eating, not necessarily what they do eat. But it's never too early to start these health messages really early on. Hey, Sandra, Julianne here. So lovely to speak with you today. I actually think that's a really great point and I think all of those points marry into one aspect of modern life and that is our modern rushing life where we are after a quick fix um, or if my child doesn't want to eat that, then just quickly eat that. 
Um, but I think that's what naturopaths and herbalists are very good at is that we do spend the time in our consultations to address so many different aspects of the healing, I guess, paradigm that we're all about. And I think that's really important. And as naturopaths and herbalists, we are so very blessed to have such a large range of tools that we can choose from to support our patients. And you did already touch on this, but I'm wondering if you could go in there a little bit further around what you believe that are our key pillars that we can educate our patients on with regards to longevity and healthy ageing, which are the ones we can prioritise for those patients? Yes, absolutely. Look, when when I think about that, I think about, you know, the foundations in that naturopathic therapeutic order, level one, remove the obstacles to cure. Okay, you're smoking, you've really got to get rid of the smoking. If you're drinking too much, you've got to reduce that and, and institute a more healthful regime, you know, like... And fundamentally, that diet is really important and exercise. It's also the hardest thing to get people to do, you know, like actually getting them to eat well. And so part of, I think, what we have to do is think about what are the simple things we can do. People love it when you say, well, actually, you could just kind of snack on those raw vegetables, buy them already pre, you have to buy them already pre-washed so that you're eating on them. It's tricky. You know, we have to be careful about not being too idealistic and look at what the patient is like in front of us. So, like, I've got one of the recipes on the Jean Howell's kitchen that, that I have is this bounty bowl, and it actually looks at the 12 components of the Mediterranean diet some researchers predominantly in Melbourne retranslated the Mediterranean diet equivalent to an Australian diet and they give you these 12 messages. And when you look at that, you know, eat vegetables at every meal, eat leg- these amount of legumes, these times of how many times a week, fish this like this, are these simple messages that make it achievable for our patients. So diet and exercise, looking at maybe calorie restriction, that's tricky. I really think with the calorie restriction, I often will have to modify how people are eating in this time-restricted way. You probably see this as why they've got some really fancy ideas about how to reduce calories, but it's okay to have four coffees in the morning, which is fine for some people, but probably not fine for a lot of people as well. I totally agree. And there is a big input in social media around how we eat what we should eat, <laughs> when we should eat, all the benefits of, of fasting and time-restricted eating. And in all honesty, everything has its place. I honestly believe this. Every modality has its place and every type of diet, healing diet, fasting protocol has its place. But you are absolutely right that it comes back to the person sitting in front of you and what yes. kind of pillars we need to make a priority for them. And sleep is one that we often go, yep, we need to sleep well. Well, how do they do that? We really need to rest on that for them, you know, part mm-hmm. of the because that's part of one of their major pillars of them healing, reducing insulin, reducing yes. cortisol, et cetera, et cetera. Good point. Thank you for that. Yeah, I forgot sleep. That's a really fundamental one. And it's interesting. I was at a conference at the weekend and they were talking about sleep and, you know, how we in the modern day think about what sleep is like, whereas, you know, our primal brain is actually geared up to thinking in a different way. You know, should we be waking up to check the fire? You know, why do we wake up at 1 o'clock? And three o'clock and five o'clock, someone suggested that that's the time that the lions roar. And so we're checking to see if our children are still awake, are still alive, I should say. You know, have they not been eaten? But you know, it, it absolutely in social media. I have to laugh. I love my teenage daughter, but you know, I have thirty years of nutrition um, experience and you know, four years of an undergraduate. But if it doesn't come from TikTok, it's not true. So like, I'm really fighting a losing battle against lots of social media <laughs> influences out there. 
That's fantastic. That is so true. Um, yes. Oh, we have things to learn, Sandra. We have. Absolutely. What would you know, Mum? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I guess too, as um, well as herbalists, I'll say, and naturopaths that be able to practice herbal medicine. That is a wonderful tool that we can utilize for our patients, and it covers so many categories of health. You know, so many drivers of disease. Herbal medicines cover. Do you place a priority on herbal medicine in your in your clinic? And is it useful in healing your patients that you're wanting to work with healthy ageing for? Yes, absolutely. Sometimes I have a little, you know, sometimes I smile quite quite smugly before I prescribe herbs to people because I think I feel really privileged as a herbalist because we've got at our disposable herbs that have got a similar action to pharmaceuticals. You know, I could use them collaboratively or in place of, but we have herbs with actions that has that are not in any other medicine. You know, we have these adaptogens, you know, and tonics, not generalized and organ specific. That you know, we can only we as herbalists have them. So absolutely, I use herbs, and particularly when we look at these modifiable risk factors that are associated with cardiovascular disease. And in cardiovascular disease, I'm including diabetes as well as dementia. You know, which is often called you know type three diabetes. So you know, looking at these herbs that can address hypertension, the dyslipidemia, the insulin resistance, the dysglycemia, the obesity, really important that we have these herbs that with these actions, various actions that will address those. Often, for example, you know, with hypertension, or if you've got someone who's on one or two pharmaceutical antihypertensives, and that's uncontrolled, often bringing in a herb as well. So using that, you know, that combined action. Um, Anti-inflammatories, you know, absolutely are going to be one of the actions. And I look, I know it's, it's it really is. It's it is the we know that it is the driver of most non-communicable diseases. And aging is very much characterised by systemic and chronic inflammation, and it's accompanied by cellular senescence, which I'll talk about a little bit more. In and you know, organ dysfunction, age-related diseases. And again, when we look at some of the herbs that traditionally we use, they are anti-inflammatory. So we're not talking necessarily about anti-inflammatories, but we are. There's the anti-inflammatories that can look at the what we kind of look and see as inflammation on the outside, like with arthritis, but also the invisible inflammation, the systemic inflammation, the chronic inflammation that we would be looking at. Absolutely. And then, there, of course, there are the herbs that I'm going to call the enhancers, the ones that enhance physical performance, adaptogens really and again a lot of these are anti-inflammatory and these are emerging research shows that a lot of the traditional herbs actually address or modify or target these drivers of the aging process you know the nootrophics and the cognitive enhancers and also the the sexual tonics as well would be ones that I would be looking at. Just such an amazing array and um, like diverse options that we have it's such a privilege to be able, like you said, to to harness the power of plant medicine to support, you know, enduring vitality and and health in our patients and and being able to modulate, like you said, being able to help our patients' bodies adapt to whatever um, presentation, whatever situation they're, whatever dysregulation they're in. I think that's also a really great point, Kristen, is that. So much of aging comes from dysregulation. So many processes that have become dysregulated, and some of them are our, you know, blood glucose and insulin or inflammation or immune dysregulation, right? And this is where a lot of those base 
I guess, pathways to healing can gen- generally come from. And that is the beauty of herbs is, is they modulate. Sometimes we get caught up in the science or the research that showed a particular herb was anti-inflammatory, like you're saying, Sandra, or others are immune enhancing. But in all honesty, when we actually look at the different types of patients that we do the research on, you can see that they modulate. They modulate depending on the disease or the condition that's presenting. And that's where we're so blessed to be able to utilise the synergy of all these constituents in, within one herbal medicine. Absolutely. And when we look at age, I think we really need to make the point that when we look at elderly, we're talking about over 70 in Australia, but a lot of the times we're actually intervening and do, working on this dysregulation and doing the modifying and doing the modulation is the 40s, the 50s and 60s. You know, by the time, you know, elderly, we've got a different sort of picture happening, but we've got, we can intervene to make these points that make these impacts earlier on and it seems as though like you said before Sandra you know it's never too early especially with these driving factors present once we sort of identify that there is a you know an a chronic inflammatory picture unresolved inflammation in the body that's going to be driving so many things that will then have that flow on or domino effect that in you know over time just compounds and creates all these issues We are really, really blessed with our herbs and and that's why I guess, you know, we often have our go-to, whether that be a, a bespoke individualised liquid herbal mix that we're making up for our patients or a tab- tableted formulas that we love. Um, but one thing that uh, we often notice in an older population is sometimes there can be some different challenges with administering these kind of interventions. So, you know, whether that be, uh, you know, um, swallowing is an issue sometimes or gastrointestinal absorption issues. Sometimes there's um, issues with taking medicine when cognition has declined in these patients or even financial issues, things like that. Uh, Do you you sort of see this and do you have any tips or ways that you might adapt to these prescribing challenges in these patients? It's a really good question and it's a really good consideration. So it really depends on who's in front of me, who have they come with, and and particularly. So, for example, if I've got someone who's quite elderly and has come with a uh, their child, you know, grown adult child, then who's going to have an influence on it? That might actually be different to, say, someone who's come independently. And what I often, it's made me think about it, like I think about perhaps if I've got someone in front of me who's Anglo-Celtic, Anglo-Saxon, who has a very different way of looking at herbal medicine to compare to someone who might be of European descent and has been grown, has grown up with herbs and maybe is used to herbal teas, it's going to be very different. So I'm thinking of this example of someone who came in Anglo-Celtic background, 70, polypharmacy, lots of sort of conditions, and the beauty of what you're able to do with one herb, one herb, multi-actions, a couple of dietary sort of suggestions. So, you know, someone like with that background, it's going to eat sardines, you know, not eating very well. Protein needs are really down. They know, you know, they've grown up with sardines. It's something back from the, in their country. You know, it's making little simple changes like sardines on your toast because your protein needs have increased over the 70s. And here's one herb that's going to improve a whole range of factors. It can be quite, quite rewarding as a herbalist. I do sometimes think about using the pill boxes if people are using pills and sometimes the pharmacist will actually be involved with that if you know that sometimes that will happen 
And then, and, and also look, if they come in as a couple, talking to the more cognitively intact partner who might be instrumental in, in administering the, the, the medicines or who might be more involved with the cooking, it, it really depends on what's happening. I think also one of the things I love is that we have this, you know, this search out there for the multi-specific medication that's going to cover everything. And that's where I think if, if the person in front of me does have the resources to be able to have a herb mix that's covering several actions, then the beauty of a herbal mix, one thing to take twice a day, I do tend to dose twice a day rather than three times a day, can actually be a way of sort of simplifying what we need to do. That's a great point too, with just the number of times that we dose in a day. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really beneficial and helpful. Because, And I like the point around often it's a team job when we have elderly patients, isn't it? And I am talking more on the elderly ageing. Yeah, so it can be. Um, If we are talking about herbs, though, this is something I always love to ask (laughs) this question to our people that we're giving doing podcasts with. But if we can pick maybe just a couple of diseases associated with ageing, so possibly cognitive decline and then possibly cardiovascular health, what are your maybe two or so favourite herbs in each of those categories? Okay, this is really interesting. I think a lot of the time I look over your list of herbs at Optimirex and I think, oh, my goodness, I'm not using a lot of these. And, and in fact, I'm going to throw this back at both of you because you're the um, herbal like, nerds on this. And I'd actually like to know one of each of yours that maybe I can look at to include in my talk. But I actually love Panax ginseng and American ginseng because not only are they things that I've been I'm using for years, but the research also supports their use and particularly the clinical research on people. So I, I do actually love the fact that Panax ginseng can be useful as an enhancer, but they work on diabetes, it's anti-inflammatory. And American ginseng I like because we can really dose low. When we look at cardio, so that could cover cardiovascular, it could cover the enhancers. I am actually really interested in Dan Shen as well. So the Sylvia Middle has great research around it and talking to you two a few months ago really reignited my, my love of Dan Shen. And, and I have to say, like, yeah, it, it just ticks so many boxes. When we look at cognition, I can't go past the Copa and Ginkgo because they have good research and I've come across a number of really good papers that also, when we look at systematic reviews, support that. But I am considering a little bit more the mushrooms, particularly lion's mane. True, dis- a full disclosure here, when anything is really popular in the sort of the lay people just doing it, I, I have this rejection of it. Like I think if people are putting it in their coffee, I'm not using it in my herbs, it, except that lion's mane is actually one that people come back and tell me, you know, people report, patients report, it makes it actually makes a difference. And I'm quite interested, there was some research that just came out from the Brain Institute in Queensland, where they're actually doing some research on lion's mane, on mice, and it's new um, nootrophic, where it's actually growing the nerves. So I am going to be looking a little bit more at lion's mane. And the other one I do like is kudzu because of the phytoestrogenic component, but also because of the impact that it has on cardiometabolic function as well. And I have to throw in shatavari because it's a really good sexual tonic. Such good herbs. Such good Good herbs. I feel like you might have touched on nearly all of our favourites. Well, I was just going to say there that, like, 
you know, she hasn't mentioned medicinal mushrooms, so that's my in. And then you go and, and mention a medicinal mushroom. So I'm still going to go on that path, though, Sandra, because lion's mane is definitely up there for for me. Any any condition that involves the nervous system, lion's mane will get a look in for sure for me. Um, and you're absolutely correct on the nootropic factor with regards to lion's mane. And there is so much research on it. We've had some great clinical trials around it as well um, in cognitive decline. So we can happily hand over a lot of that research for you to have a look through too. It's it's um, it's significant. The other medicinal mushroom that I think is a really important tool, I suppose, is reishi. For all of those helps in cardiovascular health, in cognition, in all areas of health, really. And so reishi fits well in there for me too. And I'm sure Kristen could jump in and have a few more. Oh, and I also hands up with bacopa. I love bacopa for um, that yeah. energy producing effect as well as cognition. Yeah. I you know, I'm just going to be a yes and man here. So I, I agree with everything you both said. I love all of those herbs. I think lion's mane is, like you said, Sandra, it's one of those um, mushrooms that people really come back and report significant changes. And one thing about lion's mane that we saw in the clinical trials is that once people stopped uh, taking it for a while, the effect gradually sort of wore off. So it seemed mm-hmm. to be one that... Um, you know, I guess that's provided that the uh, the drivers of the condition aren't being removed or addressed or, you know, the obstacles to healing are still sort of there in some way. Um, and But I do find that while patients take it, they just improve phenomenally and in really significant conditions. So, um, you know, Alzheimer's disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, really um, severe chronic issues you can get really good effects with lion's mane. And one thing that, um, you know, sticks with me about lion's mane is in the the preclinical research, they found that the constituents from lion's mane are able to cross the blood-brain barrier. So having that ability to get there is is really good. Um, I also do love Dan Shen, as you mentioned. I love Dan Shen. And I was like, is she going to mention it? Ah, okay, it's something else. Mm. It's down the list for cardiovascular disease for me is probably hawthorn berries which i know is a favorite but um you know that polyphenol content is really yeah. really so useful in systemically for yeah. um, so many different that's a great point look the polyphenols really are one of the key important factors with with a healthy diet and certainly of the mediterranean diet and it's interesting you know like that you mentioned hawthorn berries and and to look at it like that like the students often want to use hawthorn berries as an antihypertensive, but I think its role is as a tonic. You know, it's kind of that level three of the, the naturopathic therapeutic order. We use the tonic, but it's food as medicine as well, really, those berries with those high polyphenols. So it's very important as a as part of it. I do love it and the berries specifically. It is a great herbal medicine. And I think as students, you know, we do the best we can and we, we learn herbs in a fairly straight line and it wasn't until... I started practicing, going to seminars and doing my own research that I actually understood the full depth of herbal medicine and how we can apply it into different conditions. So I am so, so looking forward to your webinar, Sandra. You are going to be a wealth of knowledge and I can tell that you're putting in significant time to delve into more research as well, which is so exciting. Thank you for your time today and giving us a little look into what's (laughs) what's coming next month. We really appreciate it and hopefully we'll get you back on our podcast in the future. My pleasure. Thank you.